Hello, mentors. Welcome to our podcast series, Mentorships in Education, brought to you by Just Education at JustEducationFirst.com. I am your host, Judy Epstein. I am very excited about the wide range of experts who have volunteered to give up their time and expertise. They will share their innovative ideas, their exciting perspectives, their rich resources, and their research with us. Please continue to delve into these topics on their websites and with your legal counsel, healthcare provider, and education professional. Our guests have information that will be relevant to mentors supporting struggling students, parents, teachers, administrators, legal support, and health professionals. We will address all levels of education with issues that affect academic performance. Our goal is to open discussions and introduce a variety of approaches to those searching for information in a free venue. So mentors, let me introduce our guest for today. Welcome mentors to Mentorships in Education. I am your host, Judy Epstein. I have had a goal these last few years to provide my listeners with a free resource to help guide you in your quest for direction in working with students who are struggling. And each guest that we have is unique. They are all volunteering freely, not only their time, but their expertise. And I want to thank them so much. As the years have gone by, I've had so many people who have offered to be a guest on the show. I very much appreciate it. And I hope to be able to live long enough to get everybody on. Today's guest is no exception. I want to talk a little bit about her, but first I want to introduce by saying, often we conflate a child to a diagnosis. We look at the characteristics of a diagnosis and we expect the child in question to resemble that summary. We forget that not only is each child within a diagnosis unique, but each child has strengths, a uniqueness that overflows the summary. Or the diagnosis. One of the things that interested me with our guest today is that she made me very much aware of this, and she's going to help us understand how her work with children who are often diagnosed with autism often have areas of expertise, areas, unique situations that are positive, and we have a tendency sometimes to overlook those things. It's a different perspective, one that we're not accustomed to hearing. And I was very much hooked on this and wanted to learn more. And that's why I got in touch with her. Dr. Shoshana Levin-Fox is a psychologist from Jerusalem in Israel. And she has had the honor to work with some very prominent people in a very well-known facility and has focused her work with children on have been diagnosed with autism. I also want to mention that I've titled this podcast, The Islets of Normalcy. And this is something we're going to look at more because it's one of the qualities of her exploration into children with the Dr. Weierstein that we're going to be talking about later that drew me in, hooked me. What are the islets of normalcy? What do those mean? How do they pertain to children with autism? And why do they give us hope 
which is exactly what we're going to be talking about. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Uh, Shoshana Levin Fox. Welcome. Thank you so much for being with me today and for giving me so much time and being so patient over the holidays so that we're able to do this. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you, you, Judy, for this opportunity. Uh, Dr. Fox is a Jerusalem-based child psychologist. She is a play therapist, an autism specialist, and the author of the Parent-Friendly, an autism casebook for parents and practitioners, the child behind the symptoms. Between 1992 and 2017, she worked at the renowned Feuerstein Institute in Jerusalem, where she was responsible for the dynamic assessment and treatment of children who had been diagnosed as autistic. She has shared her wealth of experience using play-based methods to assess and treat young autistic children as num- at numerous worldwide conferences, in professional publications, and most recently in her book, An Autism Casework. Just tangentially, I will say that her journey to where she is now has taken her through Ohio, Boston, Vancouver, <laughs> and Jerusalem. Right. So, <laughs> it's so been a long haul. <laughs> she's made the round. Yes, so, I have. So let me... Um, have you begin by giving us a little bit uh, of background on on your your journey and and including that please your choice as a as a psychologist to focus on children with autism. Uh, what was your aha moment? Here? Interesting question. Um, well, start with that, I guess. First of all, Judy, thank you so much uh, for that introduction, but most of all for this opportunity to share My with you pleasure. and listeners. My pleasure. Um, sort of autism kind of out of the box from a different perspective. <laughs> um, I was always fascinated my entire career with the, the topic of autism. And years ago, uh, I'm not sure it's okay to say this in public, but, you know, in my formative... Go for it. You, go for it. For, <laughs> formative university years was reading... Bethlehem, well, you know, okay, uh-huh. so that's what that's what was going on in those days. Yes, and actually learned a lot, and was dismayed to hear what happened later, and the, the kind of uh, it, it developments that happened uh, later at that particular place. But I always had a career long interest in autism, and it might, maybe, maybe, maybe have to do with the fact that as as a child I was kind of shy. Hard to believe it now, but. You know, kind kind of shy. So I always connected pretty well with children who weren't speaking. But that interest in autism absolutely flourished um, when in 1992, I received a Shirk postdoctorate fellowship at Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. I'm from the States, but I was doing graduate studies for about 15 years, various degrees and working and so on in Canada, and so qualified. And I received that shirk for a proposal I put through to to work, to do some research in autism. Now, I'm a clinician at heart. I'm not a researcher at heart. I like to learn from what the children teach me, uh-huh. more than from the numbers. That's interesting. And Yeah, very much so. So, Judy, when I got this shirk postdoctoral fellowship in 1992, I had applied to do 
research in autism at the Feuerstein Institute in Jerusalem. And that was just a life changer for me because between 1992 and 2017, I was working at the Institute and I started off doing research for two years, but I'm a clinician at heart. And in fact, I hadn't been there for two months when the professor Ruben Feuerstein was saying to me, where are you? And I said, Ruben, I'm supposed to be doing a research project. He said, we need you with the children. <laughs> oh, wow. How wonderful. Yeah. yeah. That's the kind. I'm sure you're so, glad to hear that, though. That's where my heart always has been, Judy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so very soon, my specialty there became reassessing children who had been diagnosed elsewhere using conventional means, symptomless DSM-4, DSM-5, and diagnosing children who reassessing children who had been diagnosed as autistic in other places. And parents had heard that we worked from an out-of-the-box, unconventional way. We're not, we weren't at all working from a conventional psychology model. We were looking for the child behind the symptoms and so on. So I really focused on finding the child behind the symptoms. And so often I found that children who had been diagnosed elsewhere using conventional means, symptomless, uh, more formal criteria, a lot had been missed. A lot had been missed and many were misdiagnosed. So now that's. You, I'm going to interrupt you for one minute. You mentioned the sure. DSM 4 and the DSM 5. Some of our listeners sure. may not know what that is. I believe you're okay, referring sure. to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Is that, yeah. is that correct? And there's two different editions, a more, well, an older one and a more current one. Is that it? Well, right. In other words, there actually have been five over the last okay. Okay. years or so. Right. So I'm, I'm assuming that four and five. Okay, right. My my career sort of the 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 heart of my career spanned the, the uh, sort of the reign so to speak of the DSM four and the DSM five, and I found that a lot of children using those uh, materials had been misdiagnosed, and we never gave the diagnosis at the Feuerstein Institute. We never gave the diagnosis the power to determine who the child was and what they were capable of. So it was a very different kind of working environment. Absolutely. And um, I, I, I'm thinking I actually don't have any experience with this uh, statistical manual, but I'm assuming that within it, things are pretty well defined. Is that correct? And from a checklist or is that how? There, there, are, there are symptom checklists. Um, in, in fact, unfortunately, not so well defined. Oh. Um, in, particularly in this most recent edition, uh, for autism, the DSM-5 speaks about a range of symptoms. So you can have a range of social problems. You can have a range of social communication mm -hmm. and so on. Once you get a range, I think clinically, you're in very, very troubled waters because <laughs> you're going to lose your specificity of what what is really autism. And uh, I fear that that's gotten lost these days. I know that many people would disagree, but uh, I worked from a model that put the diagnosis aside, look for the child's strengths, look for those islets of normalcy, which was one of Professor Feuerstein's 
most useful terms. And uh, that's I'm what have you, I'm going to have you talk about that as we get into the discussion a little bit. But I want to understand when you had a profile of a student, the modifiability, the profile of the student, what does that mean? Profile modifiability. Modifiability. Okay. Right. What does that mean? How It sounds very flexible to me. So I'm wondering how, when you were doing an evaluation at the Feuerstein Institute, how they were open to evaluating a child from a much wider perspective, I guess, more. And what you said to me was it wasn't just about their the checklist and what they fit into, but also it had to do with things that they were doing that didn't fit into the checklist that we consider to be more normal behavior. That's right. That's right. So um, do you want me to give you an example? Would that I, I would love well, examples. My listeners love examples. Okay. So, yes. Okay. So let's take um, a little guy uh, I wrote about it in the book was 18, 18 months old when he came in, very, very young, sitting on the carpet, looking lost, lost. And yet I felt he was very present. I felt, I felt his presence. He had no speech. He wasn't babbling. He wasn't p- playing. So if I took, at the time it was the DSM-4, if I had, I never used the DSM-4 or 5 because I found they didn't give me an access to the child's strengths and examples of how to um, modify the child. That's what's most interesting and important for us. So I'm, I'm looking at this little boy, and of course his parents had already started uh, some floor time with him which was a brilliant move on their part. And if you just looked at him and looked at a symptom checklist or used some of the DSM uh, criteria, Judy, you would feel, you would say, okay, for sure, this child is autistic. He's not looking around. He's not curious. He's not playing. He's not interacting and so on. Okay, I saw that, but I would say to all the parents, it's not enough to see what the child's problems are. You have to see what the child, behind the child's problems. So after observing him for a while and talking to the parents who were very distraught about his situation, I said to them, with your permission, I'd like to take off his shoes and socks. Is that all right? So I sat down on the carpet and I said to him, I'll, I'll use a, a pseudonym, right? As I as I call him in the book, I said, "Sasha, I'm going to take off your shoes, and I'm going to t- take off your shoes and socks, and that's what's happening right now. And mommy and daddy are right here with you. Of course, he's not responding, but I felt he was in there listening, and I just gently began to tickle his toes. <laughs> and you might not think it's much, but he looked at me." Under the circumstances, that was an important island of normalcy. I I coached his parents, trying to give them some idea of how they could play with him at home, how important it was for them to talk to him. And of course, it's very difficult for a parent, and I understand this, to talk to a child who's not speaking. Talk to him. Don't ask him questions. Don't ask him, what's this? What's this? What's this? 
tell them what's going on, and so on. That child, three years later, we did follow-ups. I couldn't see the children weekly. There were too many too many children. The, the, the demand was too great. See the children say once a month, once every two months even. Give the parents homework, what they could do, how they could play with their child, how they would talk to, talk, talk with their child. And we began to see changes. Three months later, he, three years later, he was a completely different child. A completely different child with a, stri- with a strength-based focus. So that from that little tiny just looking at me, now in most assessment situations, pair, um, a professional would not, um, would disregard that. Sad to say, but I think most people work, working conventionally would say, yeah, okay, he looked at me, but look, he's 18 months old. Yeah, so what? He's, he's not curious. He's not talking. He's not doing this. He's not doing this. Where we would take those little tiny, I'm going to use the term again, islets of normalcy, uh, a, a favorite term of the professor. I, and I can give you a, you know, kind of a, a few more samples of what those can be in certain, in other situations and just focus our energy right there and say, wow, that is so important. That means he's in there, mom and dad. So there's someone to talk to. Just keep talking to that person behind the symptoms. Here's how you can play with him using sensory play and so on. And I hope that gives a little it bit does. of sense. And I, and I am going to ask you for some more examples. But um, Dr. Uh, Feuerstein uh, used to say, as I understand, I will never give the chromosome the last word. <laughs> right. right, right. I, I love that. I love that. And also in your work, um, I'm going to just read one of the things you wrote and people can look at it because we're going to include this uh, in a tab. They can look at your introduction to your book, but you write that a diagnosis may obscure the latent energy and positive abilities within a child that could help symptoms that are considered intransient or innate to fade. Can you explain that a little bit, please? I, that is so powerful for me. Judy, I saw it again and again over the 25 years that I worked at the Poirier Institute. I think what you just gave us, that example you just gave us, is what reminded me of this quote. Right, right. I saw it again and again. Uh, I saw that when we helped parents, first of all, identify the strengths of the child, those little teensy-weensy islets of normalcy, and when we gave them the tools of how to talk and how to play with the child and not to give... That was part of what we were doing. We just saw amazing changes. And what you just read was just absolutely true. We would see um, symptoms fade away. Can I give you another example? Please, I'd love to have another I'm sure our <laughs> okay. listeners would too. Okay. Okay. I, I believe in the book I call this little boy Josh. And this was mm-hmm. an incredible experience aside from being very satisfying professionally. It was just very heartwarming experience with this child. He came in at the age of three with, at the time they were using the diagnosis, PDD, pervasive developmental disorder. Um, in my estimation, a very unfortunate diagnosis, which told nothing, but was used to sort of as wink, wink, nudge, nudge, 
we know it really means autism and many it didn't have a whole lot of meaning at any rate he had received this pdd diagnosis elsewhere very very anxious little boy and the day before he came into my office at the Feuerstein Institute. He had been expelled from nursery school. Now, not many, not many children get this honor of being uh, expelled from from nursery school. I'm Why? Laughing, but it's so sad. It was very sad, and the parents were really shaken. Why? Because when he was stressed sensorily, in other words, too much noise, right. too much action, too much, he would undress. Well. He had become overwhelmed in nursery school and had undressed. And of course, at the end of the day, the teacher called the parents and said, I'm really sorry, but we can't take it back. The next day, he was at the Institute. He came in in his mother's arms. I'm going to go into some detail here because mm-hmm. I think that will help flesh it out. And the, he was in his mother looking very, very fearful, very, very anxious. And he came into my room. I had some toys scattered around the floor and so on. And it didn't take long before out of out of anxiety, he went to the door, he, ra- he peeled off his shirt, <laughs> he peeled off his shirt, raced out the door, down the hall, undressing as, his, as he went. It was quite a drama. His mother, of course, raced after him, picked him up in her arms that he was undressing as he went, you know, <laughs> brought him back terrified little boy now this boy had an autism diagnosis but looking at it from a poor Feuerstein perspective from an uh, a functional kind of perspective Mm -hmm. I'm going wait a second this child is not cut off because that's the that's the real issue in the original autism and I hold by that this child is not cut off because if you're anxious you're aware of your environment right and if you've come into a strange setting, you're reading the environment accurately. Oh. And if you don't know who the lady is behind the desk, and she could be a doctor, you have reason to fear. So there's a whole lot of cognitive and developmental processing going on there. So it was clear to me that this child was anxious. It was clear to me that he had a developmental dis- delay. And it was equally clear to me that he was not cut off in an autistic sense. So what we're, I'd like to describe to you how those islets of normalcy lead to a breakthrough okay i want i want to give your yes you i want and you to listeners yes. and listeners a sense of how how the whole thing sort of fits together islets of normalcy profile of modifiability terms that we that we lived by at the institute what does it really mean <clears throat> so mom brought him back i asked their permission to lock the door i asked their permission i said it'll probably make your son very Anxious, even more anxious at first, but you're right here with him. And we'll, we'll go through that anxiety and then he'll, but he'll calm because if we just let him take his anxiety into the halls and run scared, we haven't really helped him. They were fine. And in fact, he, he showed some signs of anxiety, but mom and dad were wonderful in calming him. <clears throat> and then he began to look around the room. Well, on the floor, here's some, so far he's a nonverbal child completely overwhelmed by the situation. On the floor, I had the, the old Fisher-Price dollhouse, the one that sort of opens up in, mm. in a half. Oh you my probably gosh, know I it. remember that. Yeah. You remember that, right? That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. And he, he, <clears throat> he sat down and there were some plastic, you know, furnishings for it. 
And he sat down and sort of looked through the window of the dollhouse. And I thought, having been some, had some background in floor time, I got down on the floor, lay down on the carpet on the other side of the window and peeked at him through the window. Nice eye contact. I could see that his anxiety was receding. <clears throat> he began to take some plastic tables, plastic chairs, put them around the table and take some little tiny figures and seat them at the table. Now that's real important eyelid of normalcy. That's symbolic play. And that's really exciting to see that. Here's a child who understands person, chair, table. Uh-huh. He, he reads that he's reading the environment. And all of a sudden, Judy, he whispered, birthday party. Oh, my gosh. I'd be jumping down. (laughs) Right. And I very softly, because I knew his threshold for the stimulation was very, very low, I very softly said, right, it's a birthday party. But that little tiny islet of normalcy told me so much about what was in this child. Had I accepted the PDD diagnosis and said, well, you know, I think you should send him off to a special such and such a setting and that, oh, what would have been missed? Then I must tell you, I must share with you what happened. I hope it won't be a spoiler for those who read, (laughs) for for those who read the book. But um, it was just so exciting that I, uh, it was just so incredible. I said to the mother, the parents, I said, look, this is not autism. And some of your listeners would say, well, what do you say it's not autism? You didn't tick off, all, tick off all those symptoms on the list and you didn't. No, I didn't. I saw all this beauty inside this little scared little boy who was overwhelmed sensorily. <clears throat> I said to the mother, okay, he needs to be in a regular kindergarten, but you're going to have to hand pick it, but that won't be enough. She says, well, we actually have another place. I thought that's wonderful. I said, but his anxiety is going to overwhelm him very soon, and he'll find himself out of that kindergarten, too. I said, I'll do some interactive play with him. Let's try six sessions over the next six weeks. Mm-hmm. So he, came, he we did interactive play that was more like play therapy. That he would come in. I'll tell you the breakthrough. It, it was wonderful, and then I won't go on, and people will have to oh. just sort of pick it up to, okay. to, to get what happened. But basically, okay, this, is, this will next, be the... This will be the trailer, right? This is the trailer. Okay. This is the trailer, right? Okay. okay. So he comes in the next week looking scared in his mother's arms. With, their, with her permission, I locked the door again so he wouldn't take all that anxiety all over the place. We'll just contain it and support him through that. He was sort of freaked out for about 10 minutes. He sat in her lap across from me at the desk, and I had some animals uh, stuffed animals on the desk he took one look at the animals flicked you know looked at me in the eye angrily took that one of these animals threw it over his shoulder behind him and i thought wonderful we have an opening so i took one of the animals and i said yeah i don't want this crummy tiger and I threw it over my shoulder. And then we had a dialogue going where he was throwing animals. I had half the, all the animals that I had in my toy cupboard, I brought out. And we spent like 40 minutes throwing animals all over the room. 
within three, I saw him for six times. After three sessions, he already had improved behavior in the gun, in the kindergarten. Over the years, this child went on to be completely normal, and I presume now he's married with kids. You know, he went to university, the whole business. He was fine. And it all started with seeing that little islet of normalcy and realizing that against the symptoms, this was the the symptoms then, no, 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 that's not the place to look. This little boy, he's in there. The child behind the symptoms is in there. And sure enough, he was. His parents so, did. So, I mean, it's so, it, it's so disheartening um, when uh, a child is misdiagnosed that that diagnosis then becomes the parameter of what we expect from the child, how That's to right. work with the child. And it's so, it's so, it's so um, uh, confining. And I, I guess I was going to ask you what some of the implications are of a misdiagnosis, but you've kind of given two very good examples about um, the consequences of a misdiagnosis and how a parent or even uh, a, a men another mentor, a teacher, a psychologist as yourself, um, can um, can change the trajectory of a child's life completely by completely. by using these terms right. that are so uh, confining, so it, restricting. You're, you're you're so right about 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 the confining, and it, I think it's reached a stage these days where once people get um, a diagnosis of autism or a spectrum, I'm talking about children now. Right. My bailiwick, bailiwick is, is young children. Once the children get a diagnosis, whether they are genuinely autistic or not, people then look for the aspects of the child's behavior that justify the diagnosis right. rather than looking, as we did, for the anti-symptom. So may I just return to a question you asked before? Yes, about what's, yes. What's, you asked, what's a profile of modifi modifiability? Mm -hmm. I think the the example that I just gave you of Josh, of getting down on the floor, looking through the window, and getting eye contact from him is a tiny, tiny example of what we mean by profile of modifiability. In other words, what did I do in a session that helped create change in the child? Well, I guess in that case, it was understanding that the child was fully present and relating to him, I know you're in there. I know you're scared. And yes, it's a birthday party. What did I do? What did the what did the uh, clinician do to create change? What changes were observed in the child? Well, what changes were observed in Josh? In in the second session when I did some uh, tossing animals around the room with him, um, basically the change that was observed was. The child who had been freaked out for half an hour the first session was only freaked out for 10 minutes and, in fact, made a nice, warm, if nonverbal, contact with the clinician. So that's evidence of change. So that's part of the profile of modifiability. Absolutely. And I hope it helps me understand a little bit. I know that you don't want to have a big discussion on play as a form of therapy because we have other things that we need to go into. But I just want to understand, um, you did make a couple of comments, and I just want you to explain them because your examples 
are very indicative of the comments that you made. So you said to me that play is a two-way street, and you have talked about proactive play. Right. And so why is play such an important tool for observing children during an evaluation process and not just using a checklist? Oh, gosh. Because play really is like a mirror. Play is like a mirror of many, many uh, aspects of child development, speech, language, communication, personality, um, emotional tone, cognitive, mental understanding of the world, fine motor, gross motor, everything a child is can be why do I say it's two-directional? Observed through play. can't be measured, but it can be understood. In other words, if you're into measurement, play probably won't help too much. But if you're into understanding, play gives you a mirror into the child. But more than that, play, whether it's through play therapy or as I used at the Institute, DIR floor time uh, developed by Drs. Serena Weeder and, and Stanley Greenspan. Um, it's developmental play, so you're starting at baby level play, tickles and cooing and rocking and holding, gentle holding and so on. And then you're moving up to turn taking and then you're moving up to adding vocalization and, and words to it. And then you're working into meaning and some, you just go up the developmental ladder. Play also gives the clinician the way to influence the child's development in all of the problematic yeah. realms, in all of them. I like that. I mean, if you think about it, I think some of the best speech therapists that I've ever encountered are those who know that how to unlock the power of play. They get the child playing. Others will sit at the child and sort of do exercises. But the best ones will start to play with the child, and then the child starts to vocalize, and then you can use that to to improve things when i was trying to decide what the title for this mm. uh, podcast was i was also wrestling with another term that you used and i think you're you've given us plenty of examples of that you said create a bonfire from the sparks oh yeah and i was thinking about using that also as a as a title for the um for mm -hmm. the podcast. So what you're saying is, is that the these little islets of normalcy, and correct me if I'm wrong, are kind of mm -hmm. like the sparks. And absolutely. And you're developing them into a bonfire and working absolutely. with kids and making them the, the making them these little things you're noticing become the primary and the most important focus rather than some of this checklist stuff that we we have a tendency to focus on. absolutely because absolutely judy that's this i also I sort of mix the metaphors you got one hand you got islands of normalcy which uh -huh. conjures up a vision of uh, hawaii in the middle of right the right and then you've got these sparks that i sometimes refer to it's the same kind of thing same idea i'm sure they have bonfires on the beach in hawaii <laughs> sure they do too <laughs> sure they do uh, the, um i i'm also want to spend some time talking about your book. And um, I, 
we've gone over some of it. Uh, we talk about the child behind the symptoms. I think we've kind of talked about that a little bit. But um, I'd like to understand with all of the collective information that you've put together, uh, many people collect a lot of information over the years, but they don't sit and write a book. What was your what was your impetus to actually sit and get this? What what need did you see right. that you thought the book would help to um, right. mitigate? Right. No, very important question. Um, I think overall, uh, Judy, I just saw too many children that were that were being hurt by this over enthusiastic use, over generous use of misdiagnosis of autism. In other words, even when a child is genuinely autistic, there's still much that could be done. But I saw so many children whose, whose futures and whose uh, developmental trajectories were headed for an unhappy place that didn't need to be. I'm not saying that every child that walked into my office was going to turn out 100% fabulously normal but i could see the potential in the child and my colleagues also we could see the potential because that was the watchword of the institute was actualizing potential in these children i saw too many children over the years that were hurt and i also saw too many parents that were discouraged um really had lost a lot of hope about what could be done for their child. Oh my gosh. And I wanted I wanted to share these stories of success. Um, not all of them are flaming, extraordinary successes. And that was important to put out there too, that not all of them end up with the happiest endings. But so many of the children that my colleagues and I saw ended up in a so much better developmental place than they had been when they, when they walked into our our offices for starters, that I realized that this had to be shared. And I also wanted to share the whole perspective. One more word about it. Mm -hmm. It was in in a lot of books about all kinds of things. You start off with the theory and then you put the the case studies that exemplify the steer the theory. It was really important for me to start off the other way. I really wanted the children's stories to tell about what is possible. I wanted the children's stories to show parents that the diagnosis of autism does not have to have the power to determine the child's future. It does not have to. May have an the aspects of autism may, but to give the diagnosis, especially at an early age when there's so many misdiagnoses, so much misdiagnosis going on. I just, I just had to share it. So I put the kids first. I put the children's stories first. Mm -hmm. um, I talked very, very frankly about the amount of energy and support that I poured into parents to help them see their child through my eyes. <laughs> I mean, it might sound rather egocentric, but it's not. I wanted them, they would, they have, I saw parents that were devastated by the um, conventional diagnostic process and they would come in and and some of them weeping and come into my office for the first time and I'd say wait a second we don't work I said I see some of your child's difficulties but that's not the end of the story that's just the beginning I see that 
Uh, but I want to see more. I want to see where your child can get to. It was just really important for me to share that experience. And then in the latter half of the book, still has another six case studies in it, woven through the theory to help people get a handle. And it's it's not written in a really thick academic kind of a thing, you know. So it's I believe it's accessible, you know. Parents could read it and get some insight. And oh, you also, I hope so. Yes, I think so. I mean, you also talk about if they are looking for a practitioner, if they're looking for a practitioner, some of the things you mentioned in the book may help them in finding someone who is more positive and working with their child rather Absolutely. than more confining and working with their child. So do you feel that it's important to have an early diagnosis or an early yeah. evaluation or, okay, I kind of thought no but i want because we need to do this soon (laughs) (laughs) i think i think what needs it's an interest it's an interesting question i think what's important is early intervention rather than early rather than early diagnosis i make a distinction because almost all the little kids that i saw that i talk about in the book most of them are youngish they had been diagnosed at an early age The diagnosis in most of the cases proved absolutely mistaken. Some of them had various other developmental issues that had been obscured by the by the autism diagnosis. So I'm very much in favor of in favor, I think it's critical to get early intervention. The diagnosis of autism, however, sometimes is just given so prematurely and is then given so much power to determine who the child is and what they're going to be and how much they're capable of. Whereas if you work from, I work from the, you know, primarily I use the DIR floor time along with uh, Feuerstein inspiration, we could get so much change from these children. I will go back to that example I gave of little 18-month-old Sasha sitting on the floor. Interesting case in point to what you're saying about diagnosis, early diagnosis, as opposed to and what I'm saying about early intervention. They were very worried. They were intelligent people. And of course, uppermost in their mind, maybe our little boy is autistic. Interestingly, they decided, and I think it was a brilliant decision, Not to go for a diagnosis, but to take that person, take their little guy, to the best DIR speech therapist in Israel. And they got to her doorstep. And what does DIR stand for? What is it? Okay, it's DIR floor time is a method, a play-based method of intervention developed by Dr. Serena Weeder and the late uh, Dr. Stanley Greenspan. Mm-hmm. And it mean it refers to its developmental, it's individual. Okay. In other words, the play is individual, individually adapted to a child's particularly their sensory right. needs and the way and are above all it's relationship relationship based. And the floor time basically means you're on the floor playing with the kid. You're not behind your desk with a symptom checklist going tick, tick, tick. You're getting involved, you're getting engaged. And you're going for that kid behind the symptom. But case in point, just to go back to little little Sasha, interestingly, at the age of two, two and a half, three, 
his parents decided not to go for the diag- not to go for the diagnosis, but to focus all their efforts on the best intervention they could get for him. And uh, it, it paid off remarkably. It just paid off remarkably in his case. So I think un- he never did. He never did get the diag- the diagnosis of autism, but his parents. I, I mean, I, he just went from strength to strength. It was remarkable to see. So it was an early intervention, but there's also absolutely. understanding that comes along with that. It's it's absolutely a, a early understanding of what the child um, needs needs to have needs. done, rather than uh, now, what they now, can do. Now another another point here that that's that's kind of political, Judy, is the <laughs> fact that um, I, I can almost hear some of your listeners who aren't yet listening as we record this, but I could almost hear some of your listening say, yeah, but you can't get the intervention unless you've got the diagnosis. And I think it's, I, I'm aware of that. Interesting. Fact. Okay. I, do, I don't, I, I don't live in a cave. I, I'm aware of those dynamics, particularly in the States. We can't get the services for a child unless we have the diagnosis. And unless he has an autism diagnosis, then we can't get the services. Okay. So you're in a loop and it's almost like a simple, the system itself is is creating a situation. <laughs> well, yes, in this in in a sense, because you might know in your heart as a mother, I don't really think my kid is like really autistic, but I think he really does need some speech therapy. Right. The only way I can get the speech therapy and the OT and the this and the that is if we get this autism diagnosis. So very sad and very sadly, uh, a lot of times the the whole politics of the system contributes to this diagnosis as opposed to potential focused way of working. So sometimes the parents may need to have the diagnosis, but then, as you say, bear in mind that it is uh, a process they need to go through, and then they can focus on the support, the understanding, the intervention that they need well, to have. Absolutely. May, may I just add that, you know, yes. parents would parents would come in, obviously, we have the same dynamic here in Israel. The National Insurance Service uh, pays parents, you know, of, of autistic children. They get a certain amount, which they can then use for the child's therapies. So parents would come in, and they've already had the autism diagnosis. And I would say to them, um, "Here's what I uh, yeah, I see your child's problems, but you know what? I see this kind of strength, and this kind of strength, and this island of normalcy, and this island of normalcy, and this kind of strength, and this kind of strength." I said, "You know what? Don't worry." I'm not going to phone the National Insurance Institute and say, you know what? Little Joey here is not really autistic. It's like, you need that money for speech therapy. I'm here to tell you your child is not really autistic. He has a developmental delay that's rooted in this, that, or the other. And I would contribute whatever I was learning about the child to fill in the blanks. So, yes, that's right. In other words, you could, uh, it's going to sound a bit crude, but uh, I don't want to get myself yeah. legal trouble here. You know, take the money and run, but hold on to your belief right. in your child. Hold on to your knowledge of your child. The diagnosis does not have the power to determine your child's future. Your your child's strengths and potential are what can help. Um, let's say outweigh over time the uh, symptomatic kind of behaviors. You mentioned a while back, you, you sort of made reference about finding good practitioners. And 
Right. Uh, I think it's so important to find practitioners who see the strengths of your child. So if you're sitting down, you know, in a first meeting and say, well, oh, you know, practitioner says, um, oh, you know, your child has an autism diagnosis from such and such a major hospital. Yes, I see. Um, well, you know, I'll be working with him in such and such a way. In other words, if they don't see the potential of the child, keep shopping if you possibly can. Get people who work with your child who believe and who see the potential of your child. Very, very important. Those are some wonderful, wonderful tips. And, um, and I think that if parents don't get and, and mentors don't get anything else out of this, I think the last two things that you've said are probably um, the most important ideas that we need to keep in mind in working with our with our children before we conclude is there is there anything else you would like to throw out there that might be supportive of uh the topic that we're discussing or helping right or how to bring out the best in your child right, um, right. yeah one other one other um one is two things i think one is being aware that um the in my estimation, from my experience, uh, the autism diagnosis is being used very, very liberally. So I think it's important for parents to be aware of that. It, it, we've gotten very, very far from the original configuration of, of autism 80 years ago. And some people say, oh, that's wonderful. That's a great thing. I don't think, I don't think we're, it's serving many, many children well. And it's putting children in a big kind of a, under a big umbrella that's way too big and we're missing both children's strengths and often we're missing underlying difficulties. So that's one point. And the other point from a practical point of view is um, it's so important. And I learned this from Professor Feuerstein. It's so important to talk to your nonverbal child. Now it's so important. Now, he has he had some research to back it up, but I'll just I'll talk a bit about what what that can do. I've just seen that make so much difference. Most parents, when a child is not talking, obviously they're very saddened, they're very worried, they're very discouraged, they're very depressed. They're going through a lot, a lot of really difficult stuff. So in a way, it's natural not to talk to your child the way you talk to your other children. So. Uh, I would tell parents, don't quiz them. A lot of times parents say, what's this? What's this? What's this? Just hoping to hear, you know, pencil, red, (laughs) purple, water. I'm not diminishing that, that I can understand why a parent would be just craving to hear that. But the importance of just talking out loud to your child as you're doing stuff with your child and as you're doing stuff alone. Sounds a bit crazy, doesn't it? But it's not. So it might, might sound like, well, um, as the kid is, let's say, on the floor, lining up all his little cars in a row, perfect, you know, perfect angles and so on. And you kneel down and you give him a kiss and you say, well, you know what, sweetie, just like you would with any of your other children. Um, we're out of milk and we're out of cottage cheese. I'm just going to go to the store right now. And daddy's here and he's going to watch you. Bye. See you soon. Or while mom's in the 
kitchen, puttering around. Um, I think I'm going to make us pancakes for breakfast this morning. Instead of standing there silently, vocalize mom, mom and dad, vocalize, talk about what's going on in the world without demanding from the child. It's not instead of speech therapy and all that, and all that other stuff. It's a talk aloud method that really makes a difference. When you're taking the kid out of the bathtub or putting him in, oh, the water's so hot, isn't it? Oh, I'm going to put some cold water in. That creates in the child a propensity, an interest in the language channel. Does it make miracles overnight? No, but I have heard parents come back to me, and there is a chapter, one of the case studies in the book. I won't, I won't spoil that one. Um, well, where a very, very depressed mother, um, very, I mean, she talked openly about her depression since her child had been uh, diagnosed as autistic. And I talked with her about how important it is to talk to her child. I said, you know, if your little boy came in the office and said to me, my mommy stopped talking to me and I don't know what I did wrong. So pretend that's happening, mom, and just talk. And I gave her some examples as I, as I gave to you, you right now. And three weeks later, I got a call from her and she was so discouraged. I fully expected her to can't be calling to cancel the appointment. And she said, you know what? I started just sort of talking to him, even though he's not looking at me or saying anything. He seems to be. But you know what? hes I think he's looking at me more. And, and he started babbling, and he's never babbled before. So, And then, of course, I could coach the parents up the developmental ladder. All these little things are just so important. But talk to your child. Talk to your, if, not only for your child, for yourself, moms and dads, you know, talk about what you're going through. Like, oof, I wish daddy came home early tonight. How come daddy's spending so much time at the office? It's also, it's good for mom to express that to the child and children pick up that they're being talked to. It can make a difference. And I just throw in there that when I'm working with some younger parents um one of the issues that i have is that when they take their child out for a walk in the carriage mm. they have their cell phone in front of them when Ooh. they take Ooh. their Ouch. child into the supermarket the child's Ouch. sitting in the carriage and the cell phone is in front of them Ouch. when they're in the car driving and the child is in the car seat they're on bluetooth oh, and no. um i I, I explode. I say, please put that right. phone away when you're walking through right. the supermarket. And this would hold with, right. with your examples. Also talk about, we need to get some pancake mix because we're going to have right. pancake tomorrow morning. I don't see the pancake mix. Hmm, let me see where it is. Excellent. Oh, there it is over there. And we talk right. about that. And this cell phone thing has become a major bugaboo. To conversation with interesting and kids so i just wanted to throw it out very, there and very, very true, <laughs> very true. <laughs> i'm with you on that okay thank you so much uh dr shoshana Levin fox i so much appreciate your all your time and your patience um and we we did have some challenges that we seem to navigate i want to thank technology our, 
Yes, well, technology and also the holidays, we kind of been waiting for a little while. Uh, so I appreciate your patience and sticking with me for this. I want to thank our listeners also. For thank you, being, Judy. No, thank you for being with us today. I know that Dr. Fox would love to hear from you if you get in touch mm-hmm. with her. If you have any questions, uh, I'm sure that she would be willing to give you some communication and direction if you needed that from her. Absolutely. Um, Please stay tuned. We have some wonderful guests coming up over the next few months as we continue to find what is going on in the world and try and provide you with a free resource so that you can educate yourselves as to what is out there and what you might be able to use to help your child. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay connected. Thank you, mentors, for being with us today. If you found this podcast of value, please visit JustEducationFirst.com to subscribe to our blog and Mentorship and Education podcast so that you may continue the exploration with us. Our goal is to provide a free treasury of information for our listeners so they can become acquainted with the amazing resources that we have available to us. We want to thank all of our guests for giving their time and sharing their wealth of information with us. Please also visit their websites and explore more of their resources to further your pursuit of the topic. Hope to hear from you at JustEducationFirst.com. Have a good week and thank you.